0: Thanks Larry. You know, the, that, that was just an example of this morning where, you know, now there's a few of us here that are able to gather and that's, this is, this is rich. Like I am, for those of you here, I'm looking forward to preaching to a live audience so much. Um, but, you know, even coming together and, and then having to maintain our distance, which just feels completely anti- to what the gospel calls us to as the body of christ right like i get it i i want larry to lay his hand on me i want to be able to greet someone with you know physically in the lord and and so we recognize that we're in this season and we recognize why we are but we also realize that it's not the way it's meant to be but i i am glad i am very grateful uh, this morning that we can do this live, that we have the ability to do this live, that those of you that are watching are able to to be with us, and and that here um, we're going to join in together. So, oh, it's good. Uh, you know, February two thousand um, was a momentous month for me. It it saw me for the first time be able to travel abroad. I went with the team to India as part of a, a mission. Uh, that was part of a one-year discipleship school that uh, that I was in with our church, and that month in India was stretching, challenging, exhausting, frustrating. So many situations like that that were unexpected, and and like many, many, many situations. And I found as we were in India for the month that our comfort was of little concern to our team leaders and of little concern to the Lord, actually. It, that, he was not, it was not about our comfort at all. And we came to the end of ourselves on that trip. Well, okay, sorry, I thought that I came to the end of myself. I didn't come to the end of myself. I've realized since then I wasn't even close to the end of myself, but I thought I was. But, but I came away, the reason I, I mentioned that trip is I came away from that trip uh, a month in India having met God and experienced God in, in profound, real ways. I, I came away from that trip and, and I knew this intellectually, but like on another level, I came away knowing that the God of the Bible is true, He's real, and Jesus is alive and Jesus is working and acting in the lives of people. That for me was just unbelievably clear coming away. From what we experienced on that trip. We saw people healed miraculously. We saw people saved miraculously. We saw people set free. We saw people manifest demonic possession. We saw them set free. I, we saw the whole gamut there on that month. And and yes, I, I still I needed to grow. I really, there's a lot of growth in me still needed. There was a lot of work of sanctification that was needed. God needed to change a lot in me still, coming away from there. But faith for God to do the impossible was birthed in me on that trip. Like, I came away going, I know that God can do the impossible. When we were in a situation and in a reality where, what are we going to do? And God moves, you go, that was God. And so I want to talk this morning about Faith that believes God for the impossible. Because what I experienced there in India, like I was a 20-year-old kid, like just a kid who knew so little on so many levels. But so I, what what I experienced there in India wasn't some graduate-level Christianity. It wasn't for like if you're at this level with Jesus. It wasn't that. And it wasn't unique to me. It wasn't unique to me. It wasn't unique to our team this, it was, and it, this is, normal, biblical Christianity that can be experienced by every single person who is following Christ. I believe that. And I believe that because the Bible tells me that that's true. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you need faith birthed, increased, or stirred in your life? To believe and to hunger for God to move like we see all throughout Scripture, do you need that for yourself? Because last week we um, we had that discussion as elders on patterns of renewal in our lives. We talked about holy discontent. We talked about preparation in our lives. How do we how do we when we come to this place of holy discontent when God moves us there, where we're looking around and we're just seeing that things are not the way they're meant to be. God wants to move. How do we prepare for that? And then how do we contend for that? And we talked about some of those stages. And I'm, I'm spending a lot of time, uh, not just this last week, certainly again this last week, but, but for quite a while now, I'm, I'm spending time praying and hearing, wanting to hear the Lord on this. Like, God, what are you wanting to say to us about birthing a holy discontent, about preparing us for what you want to do, and then calling us to contend? And, and there's more phases to that, obviously. But I've been asking the Lord, and I know I've, I've said this, but I've been asking the Lord during this time of COVID, kind of since we've gone into this new phase of life, God, what do you want to do in me during this time? Like specifically, what do you want to do in me? Because there's a season that you've brought us into. And I don't want to waste this time. That's the one thing that I keep the Lord keeps reminding me. I don't want this time to be wasted because I believe that God works specifically through crisis and upheaval. He works through those things. He allows those things to happen in our world, and he's, and He's doing it because He wants to work through it. He wants to work through His church. And the question that I'm asking myself is: Is this pushing me to Jesus? Is what's going on right now? Is it pushing me to go deeper in Jesus? And I'm praying for God's presence and his power to fall. I want his presence and his power to fall in me and on me and on his church. I want God to move. And so God's using this time to stir hunger inside of me. And I hope that he's doing that in you, that that God is stirring things in you in the midst of recognizing that we are in the midst of very difficult circumstances. It's actually in those circumstances where things are not as they are, where we are stressed, we're challenged, we don't like the way things are, and God's saying, is that going to push me deeper, is that going to push you deeper into me? And so I want to talk this morning about faith that believes and trusts God to move in power. And I want to pray that this would stir hunger in us as we spend time this morning in Matthew 9. It's, it's a phenomenal chapter. So let's, let's actually, let's just stop. Let's pray together. Let's join and pray for the Lord to move. Father, I, I want to thank you again for your word. I want to thank you for... The eternal truth of it. I want to thank you for the way that it changes us, the way that it calls us to follow you. I want to thank you for the way that it shapes and forms us to be disciples of Jesus. That's the calling. And that's the invitation. And, and this word, it forms us to be like you. It works formation in us and it welcomes us into your presence. And so Lord, we want to receive this morning everything that you have for us out of your word. And we want you to ignite this in us. We want you to ignite faith in us. Lord, we pray that you'd stir faith in us. God, I pray right now that you would ru- rise the level of faith inside of us. And we we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, so before I start talking about faith from Matthew 9, I want to just note that faith has been and is abused and misunderstood in Christian circles. When we talk about faith, it can be very um, twisted. And, And so it can be negatively abused, meaning there's condemnation that goes along with it, as in, you just need more faith. God isn't moving for you because you just need more of that. And it's a negative connotation of faith. It can also be positively abused, meaning you just need to believe. Speak it into existence. God wants to give it to you. Name it and claim it. That's a positive abuse of faith that we don't see in Scripture, but it's been twisted. And the the reason that it can be hard to discern for us, and here's the the problem, is because they actually are half-truths. There is, in every single one of those things when we talk about faith like that, there is actually elements of truth in it for us. But it's twisted and it's, and it's shaped in a way that isn't according to the word. And my guess right now within LCF is that we are all over potentially on the theological map on this one. And potentially we, we might not even know where we're at when it comes to faith. But I'm, I'm guessing that there's people over here and there's people over there and, and we're just we're all over because, one of the reasons is because we have many different backgrounds. And we've been raised in different theological circles, if you will. And so we have certain understandings about this. But I, I just, I, say, I note that because I want to say the call to faith is biblical. It, it is just the call to have faith and to operate in faith is biblical. And I want to understand that, that faith is biblical by being faithful to Scripture. And so, because the call to faith, and we'll, we'll look at this in Matthew 9, is meant to stir something inside of us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what how faith is stirred in us because I believe that God wants to stir something inside of us when it comes to faith. So Matthew 9, there's four accounts in that chapter of Jesus moving in response to faith. And it is, it's is—it's a chapter, when you read it, that is just astounding in how Jesus is moving in the lives of people. People are coming to him, and Jesus is responding to them. And he specifically, and, it, and we know this because he says it, he specifically moves because of the faith of the individuals uh, that are, that are coming to him. And so, i want to I want to shape this for us this morning, as we're going to get into this and read, that these stories that we're going to look at this morning they're not one dimensional stories on a page, and we can look at them like that they These are just they're words on a page, I'm reading them, okay, yeah, this happened. But I want to just for a second pull back and and again, I know we know this, but remind us, these were living and breathing people like us. they were three dimensional. People in the world, real situations, real life problems, desperate situations, coming to Jesus, who was living and breathing on this earth, walking, was fully God, fully man, and they believed, they came to Jesus because they believed that he could move in their lives. Now, having said all that, Jesus is alive right now, amen? Amen? He's alive right now. He is not a figment of our imagination. He's not someone who died and stayed in the grave. He's living. He's ruling. He's reigning. Did he give us his Holy Spirit and as his presence to be with us at all times? Right? Amen. So he invites us to abide in him, he says. Be with me. Abide with me. So when we have, when, I, when we do that, the word promises us that Jesus will change our desires to be like his. And he promises, actually, that he will move in power when we pray. So, I say all that because we need to live out of a theology of faith that believes God for the impossible. Why? Because he did the impossible. He does the impossible. Why? He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. The Word hasn't changed. Jesus is alive, living, ruling, reigning. God not moving may have more to do with us than it has to do with Him. So that's the theology of faith that I'm living out of. Jesus wants to move. And He wants us to come to Him. So here's what I want to do today. I want to look at the characteristics of faith that believes God for the impossible. I want to look at need, expectation, and desperation. I want to consider the people in these accounts. I want to just look at that for a little bit. I want to then talk about what do we learn about the faith that's spoken about here. And then I want to end with the the implications and the applications for us. How does this change us? How do we go forth from here living out of this truth? So let's read Matthew 9 verses 1 to 8 together. If you have your Bibles at home, you can follow along with me. We won't have the, the words on the screen. But I trust that you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now interestingly enough there, they said they praised because God had given such authority to men. Yes, but no. (laughs) Because Jesus was also fully God. And they weren't actually seeing it at that point. But the first characteristic of faith here that we see that believes God for the impossible is need. Now, each of, the character- each of the characteristics that we're going to look at here this morning, they're actually they're found in every one of the accounts of faith in this chapter. So it's not like we only see need here. Um, each one has need in it. But I'm just we're drawing it out of, of this one in particular. But faith that looks to God to move in our lives simply begins with need. We see our need... We see our inability to make it happen by our own effort or resolve. We admit our need, and faith is stirred by that need. I need to seek the Lord. Which is why Scripture speaks so often of of desperation, of longing, of recognition of our need for God. Because the inclination of my heart, the inclination of the human heart, is self-sufficiency. From a very, from like the moment we begin to walk and talk, and, and even before that as toddlers, the inclination of the heart is to self-sufficiency. We've been watching a parenting series in our home group about that, about how from the time that we have little, little kids, they believe that they're self-autonomous. They think they can do it on their own. It's like, and that, that's what is in the human heart. But when we recognize our need for God, and seek for Him to move in our lives, we're actually cultivating faith in our lives by that. Because we're saying, I can't do it. I need God's help. See, the, and, and the problem of self-sufficiency in our lives, I can do it, I can make it happen, somehow I'll figure this out, which is everywhere, and it permeates everywhere, and it's, it's in the cultural DNA to the deepest levels all around us. All of that is a massive hindrance to faith. Because it, it looks to ourselves as little self-sovereigns to figure it out. I'll somehow figure this out on my own. And, and what, it, what it does is I end up going, I don't actually go to the Lord. And, and as followers of Jesus, as professing Christians, we can do that too. Now, we, it's interesting because we know from Mark's account... Of this story, that this was the incident where those who were carrying this man to Jesus, they couldn't get into the room where Jesus was, where he was teaching. And so what did they do? They they got onto the roof, probably a flat roof at the time, and they cut a hole in the roof and they let their their friend down through the hole in the roof before Jesus. I that is one of the most enduring stories, that picture in my mind from as a kid. I remember hearing this story as a kid and going, Whoa. Like, those, those people, those men, those individuals that brought their friend to Jesus, like, there was need. They were professing need. They cut a hole in the roof. Like, I still got a mental picture of that from as a kid going, that's unbelievable. It's so, that's so like, that's so rad. I remember thinking that as a kid. Now, was it the paralytic that was desperate? Or was it his friends that were desperate for him? We don't, we don't really know. It doesn't really matter. What it it reveals, though, is that there's a deep need here that they recognized. Okay, let's go on. Let's read another account. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead But sleeping, and they laughed at him. They laughed at him. (laughs) But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. Second characteristic that believes God for the impossible is expectation both the ruler here, and, and he was we know he was the ruler of the synagogue, because Mark tells us that in his accounts, and this woman who comes to Jesus, they both come with expectation. If I come, my daughter is going to be raised from the dead. If I come and I just even touch Jesus's garment, I will be healed. There's expectation that if I come to Jesus, he is going to move. And even though faith isn't mentioned specifically with the ruler, it's, it's implied all over the, the account. He had faith for Jesus to move. And there's, there's, there's expectation here and longing in both of them. And it, what it is, is it's faith that believes that there's no limit to what Jesus can do. There's no limit to what he can accomplish. There's nothing that's beyond his power. It's faith. This is that kind of faith that brings us into contact with Jesus. Faith that believes he can do anything. I just need to see Jesus. I just need to encounter Jesus. I just need to meet with Jesus in my life. When I meet with Jesus, there's expectation he's going to move. See, faith in Jesus, folks, it's not ultimately an intellectual issue. This is not about an intellectual thing of, oh yeah, I believe that. This is a cognitive issue, meaning it's an experiential issue. It's about experiencing Jesus and believing that he works. This is why hunger and for and the pursuit of God in our lives, the the actual pursuit of God, the experiencing him, Is intricately connected to spiritual growth and formation. Why? When we meet Jesus, when we meet Him, when we encounter Jesus, not intellectually, when we encounter Jesus, we are changed. It changes us. That's what forms us. What forms you into being like Jesus? It's being with Him, it's knowing Him. It's not intellectual. And, and when I look back, my early walk with Jesus, so around the time that I was in India, a little bit before that, my, that early time of my life, when I look back, was marked by s- significant encounters with God's presence and power. And I, and I still encounter that. But as a, as a young Christian, experiencing God's presence and power was foundational for forming me to be like Jesus. I needed that. And it was marked by pursuit and desire. I wanted to go after the things of God. I wanted to experience Jesus. So there was pursuit and there was desire in my life. The ruler and the woman here, they sought Jesus out. They came to him. Why? Because they had expectation. They had expectation. If I come to Jesus, he's going to do something. It's very simple faith. I want Jesus to do something. Go to him. Seek him out. Build expectation in your life for God to move. Let's read verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So the third characteristic of faith that believes God for the impossible is desperation. Both both the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and these two blind men, they both display a deep level of desperation. I need Jesus to move in my situation. Faith that believes God for the stuff that we can't see in the natural. What hope did that woman have in the natural? The the medical advice of the day, the the, the way that they, they treated people, they couldn't solve anything with her. 12 years what are the blind men going to do? They're in a situation. They can't do anything. And they're longing. They longed for God's presence and power in our lives. And that is marked by desperation. I was, I was listening to uh, an Annie F. Downs podcast um, in the early stages of the coronavirus hitting us. I think it was probably early April. And uh, there was so much uncertainty and fear at that point. Even, even here, there was a lot more fear that people were operating in, talking about, and they were talking on this podcast about God moving through this crisis. And she was interviewing a pastor, and this pastor has studied significant moves of God in in history, and so they were talking about this. And she asked him at one point, do you think that we are on the cusp of a move of renewal, that God is going to move? And he, and this is what he said, and I, and it made me stop, because he said, I don't know that we have hit the level of desperation yet that we need. And I, I thought about that. And God gripped me as I was listening to it in my car and I thought, I wonder that as well. Like, do we identify, do you identify with the longing of the individuals here in this text? Do we identify with that woman? Do we identify with the blind man? Now, yeah, I know, we may not have the level of that physical need, Maybe you do. But we may not have that need for physical healing. But does their desperation that they're coming to Jesus with, does that resonate with you? Because I'm praying that God would stir that level of desperation in me. I want that level of desperation. I need to go to Jesus. I need him. That I want to be intoxicated, if you will, with the Holy Spirit, with this level of holy desperation and holy discontent. Do we understand how deep our need is for God's presence? Do you understand how deep your need is right now for God's presence? Now, I I want to also look just very quickly here at what we see in the people in these accounts. Because... Between these people coming to Jesus, Matthew includes some very interesting, significant events happening. He includes Jesus, just a little blurb there about how Jesus called Matthew. That's all he says about himself. Jesus came, said, follow me, and Matthew followed him. Boom. And then then he he, he has the account of Jesus coming and eating with the tax collectors, probably Matthew's friends, and sinners, and the accusations that Jesus gets out of that when, when the Pharisees see Jesus eating with them. And then we've got this account of Jesus talking about all the new wineskins. And how do you understand this? But what it's basically, what Jesus is doing there is he's speaking of the newness of his kingdom that's being established. He's saying, this is a new work. What I'm doing, what I'm bringing, things are different now. This is not the same old and and what Jesus is also showing there is that there's this divine mercy of his that welcomes sinners when they repent and when they follow him. And what we see in the accounts here, both in Jesus what, who he eats with and then who he's meeting and who's coming to him, is we see those who are on the outside for the most part. The, the underprivileged, the outcasts, those in the margins of society, encountering Jesus as they come to him in vulnerability and weakness. And, and these, these individuals, interesting, who are come to, coming to Jesus, they cannot pretend or remain in hiding. Not, not if they want to encounter Jesus. They, they have to come. They have to step out in full view of others. I mean, there, there, was, there was a ton of risk here for these people. They step out in, in, in front of everyone and they show their need, they show their, their expectation and they show their desperation, because they're compelled they need to meet Jesus. And what, what do we learn of the faith that's revealed here? What We learn is that ultimately, it doesn't need to be perfect. The ruler of the synagogue who's coming to Jesus, he's coming to Jesus as a last resort. His daughter's already dead. That he waited until his daughter's dead, and then he said, like, well, what else am I going to do? Like, we don't know where he's at with his accepting of Jesus, except he recognizes, I, I, what am I going to do? My daughter's dead. The woman who's bleeding, she's, she's actually operating with superstitious faith. She thinks, I just need to touch him. Like, she's, there's a level of superstition with how she's operating. The blind men who come chasing after Jesus, what do they call him? They say, Jesus, son of David. That was a term that Jesus did not apply to himself because son of David was a nationalistic term. They were actually looking to Jesus not as the son of God. They were looking to him as a political ruler who would establish the kingdom of Israel, overthrow the Romans. Right? Jesus didn't get into that. So at every point here, there's actually imperfect faith That's operating but even in error and inadequacy faith can be effective when it's focused on Jesus with one exception there's one exception that we see here and that is unbelief Jesus does not operate in the presence of unbelief the mourners who laugh at him when he comes to raise the little girl he says okay you're outside he just puts them outside because they're operating in just flat unbelief. The Pharisees, it says here later in verse 34, we didn't read it, but they refuse to believe. They see miracle after miracle after miracle. Phenomenal things that Jesus is doing. You know what they, you know what they say? He's, he, has, he has a demon. He's demonic. He's, he's, ca- he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, they say to him. Like, What? So the claim that people would say, you know, if only I could see it, no. That's actually not necessarily true. There was lots of people that saw what Jesus did. The point is that the human heart, our hearts, are capable of profound resistance and deep self-deception. Dallas Willard, he, he wrote this in Renovation of the Heart I actually just came across this just in, as I was just sort of doing some final um, prep on this morning and I, I just thought, wow. He, he wrote this. Perhaps the hardest things for sincere Christians to come to grips with is the level of unbelief in their own life. The uninformed skepticism about Jesus that permeates all dimensions of their being and undermines what efforts they do make toward Christlikeness. The idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving Christian culture. In fact, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him than you could trust your doctor and not intend to follow their advice. If you don't intend to follow their advice, you simply don't trust them. Jesus specifically responds to faith here that has the characteristics of need, of expectation, and desperation. It's imperfect, but it's marked by desire and hunger. Imperfect faith, but it's marked by hunger and desire. I think it's an appropriate time here probably actually to to use a gardening analogy right now. But faith grows in the seedbed of desperation and need. Sow that into your life. Desperation and need. That's where faith grows. Sow that into your life. How? Getting into the word, getting into prayer, getting before the Father, crying out, Jesus, I need you to do this in me asking the Holy Spirit for hunger and desire. When I I look at, at, at these accounts, what I see is faith that believes God, faith that trusts God, looks to God above all else. Faith involves initiative, taking action with intention in our pursuit of God. Faith ignores optics, It doesn't worry about appearances or what others are going to say. The woman with the discharge of blood, she was ceremonially unclean. She was an outcast in society. No one wanted to be around her. In fact, the very fact that she was coming into a crowd longing to get near Jesus would have opened her up to all sorts of scorn and ridicule. Like, what are you doing here? Would have been the attitude towards her. Get out. She desperately needed to meet with Jesus. She took great risk. Didn't matter the optics. She wanted to encounter Jesus. Where do you need to take a risk to encounter Jesus? The blind men following Jesus, crying aloud. They're making a huge public spectacle. They don't care. You know, people like that, that that do that on the street, what do we do? We avoid them. We avoid them. We, we look the other way. Those are, those are kind of crazy people. What are they doing? Like, if, that's, only, that's how I react. If I see people like that on the street, they'd be crying after and hungering after Jesus like that. I'd be like, oh my goodness. What's wrong with those people? They followed him into a house, it says. They were so desperate. So faith exerts great effort. At the risk, if I can say this, of looking crazy. Where might our faith need to become more bold? Friends of the paralytic, again, you know, when you look at that account and what they did, what Mark says, cutting open the roof, like, like would they have stopped at any obstacle? I, I don't think so. They, they, they wanted to get their friend before Jesus. So people who go to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, chasing after just wanting to encounter God, wanting to receive healing. What do we sometimes do with people like that? Oh my goodness. I can't believe those people. Like, they just, they've been going to these meetings for years. And we go, oh my. I was, like, I was convicted by that. As I was reading these accounts, I was convicted going, maybe they're actually, they've got it. Maybe they're just really hungering after Jesus to move. And they won't stop. And so, to this faith that's characterized by need and expectation and desperation, what does Jesus do? He specifically responds with power, with mercy, and compassion. The paralytic, the the rabbis taught at the time that you could not be healed if you had sin. That was the common teaching of the day. So, sickness was evidence of sin, Suffering was actually a result of personal sin. That's why in John 9, when there's the account of the blind man that gets healed, that, that gets healed by Jesus. But the, the Pharisees, they ask, um, or sorry, the disciples ask Jesus, was it his sin or was it his parents' sin that he's like this? And Jesus says, neither. It's so that the glory of God might be made known. Right? But the, the, the understanding of the day was, if, you're, if you have personal sickness, it's because you've got sin in your life. There's sin that's evident. So, Jesus' claim to forgive the the paralytic of sin, like, it's total blasphemy. You you can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, let me back up my claim. And what does he do? Because if he's healed, maybe, he had sin. That's why he wasn't getting healed. Jesus took care of that. Jesus' words have unlimited power to affect change in our lives. Unlimited power to bring about transformation in our lives. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that God can't do. Nothing. So speak the truth of the word over your life. Pray the word over your life. Pray it. Pray the word. These words have power. To bring change. It has, this book has divine power. It's the word of God. When we come to Jesus in faith, with need, with expectation, and desperation, he responds in mercy and compassion. He says that even in verse 36. These people are like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them, it says. Jesus was motivated by mercy. He says, when he's having dinner with the sinners, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he says in verse 13. Jesus was motivated by these things, and he still is. He's working all things, all things, whatever's going on right now, the tough things, the hard things, all things for our good and for the Father's glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's working all things regardless of what it is right now? He's working all things for good. So I want to invite us here as we end, I want to invite us to make this personal today and apply this to our lives. To stir faith within us for God's presence and power to move in our lives. Do you want to be stirred? So the questions, the first question is, do you see your need? Jesus says in verse 12, when he's um, apprehended and, and accused by the Pharisees of eating with the sinners, he says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Who, who do, when we hear that, who do we see that as? Is that, is that those guys over there, those people over there? Or are we these people? Are we the ones who need the doctor? Are we the ones that need Jesus? Second question. Do you have expectation? Do you long to experience Jesus' presence in your life? Is that a longing? Do you, do you long to encounter his presence daily? Are you, are you sowing expectant faith into your life by spending time with Jesus in his word and in prayer? Are you sowing that into yourself? You know, right now I'm in the midst of building a fire pit in our yard. So I've been slowly, we've been working at it. And why? Well, the expectation is that that fire pit's going to build and, ha- and host great fires. And it already has. We've been able to have some fires. And that's, but that's what starts. Why do you do that? The expectation is, I want to have fires. So I'm going to do this. But simply wanting great fires and then sitting there and going, oh yeah, I don't have a fire pit. It's not going to happen. I can have all the expectation in the world. But if I'm not sowing in to make that fire pit happen, getting in, digging out grass, doing all the steps, it involves a lot, it's involved so far and it will involve more, a lot of time to make that a reality. Why? The expectation is I want fires. Are you sowing expectant faith into your life by spending time with Jesus? It doesn't just happen are you desperate it's the third final question you know when when we're desperate for something when we're desperate about something we go to great lengths as needed that's just what we do faith marked by desperation can expect for god to move in the impossible When we're desperate, we will believe that God can work and do the impossible. Now, I want to just end with this. Because Matthew is, he's writing these accounts and telling these accounts with a bigger purpose in mind. The way that he's constructing the gospel. The way that he he was shaping and showing how Jesus is the new Moses. And how Jesus has come to bring about God's kingdom and all that stuff. And he's showing us here how Jesus is bringing his kingdom into the lives of broken and hurting people. And within these stories, within those accounts, is the call. Follow me. And Matthew's telling us one can only experience the power of Jesus' grace if they follow him. In the end of Matthew 9, it's so interesting because it shifts a little bit. But Matthew reveals the mission of this kingdom, where Jesus says to his disciples in verse 37 The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So here's the question Who's called to be his disciples? Are you called to be a disciple of Jesus? What is needed? What does Jesus say is needed? Workers who are going to reach out with the message of the kingdom. That's the mission. That's how Matthew ends the gospel, his gospel too. By Jesus telling us to go forth and make disciples. This is the mission of the kingdom. And this is what he says then in verse 38. This is how it ends. Therefore, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest send out workers into his harvest. Do we believe those words? Do we take them seriously? Are we willing to contend in earnest prayer for God to move? Are we making prayer together in these days a priority? Something that's gripping me. Because it's clear here, What the mission is. And Jesus wants to partner with us. He's saying, pray earnestly. I want to do this. Pray, 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 pray. So, here's what I want to do with conclude I want to conclude with a question. What is one thing that I can do this week? One thing. To partner with God to foster need, expectation, or desperation for him in my life. One thing. What can I do? Jen, why don't you come up? We're going to close with worship. I want to bless you. It's good to be together. Those of you who are watching, wherever you are, it's good to be together as well. And uh, let's pray. Let's pray for God to move in these days. Amen? Amen.